Please turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of John. We're going to be looking this morning at the very end of chapter 7, one verse, and the first 11 verses of chapter 8. It's a very familiar story, but I'm going to ask that as you hear the Word of God read, that you pay attention. You seek to hear the details in here that we will explore in just a few moments. If you would please give your attention to the reading of God's holy word. For the word of the Lord is completely inerrant. The word of the Lord is completely sufficient. And the word of the Lord is completely authoritative. John chapter 7 beginning at verse 53. They went each to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, They went away, one by one, beginning with the older ones, and Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray for his blessing upon it. Lord, we ask that you would bless us this morning. Show us the Lord Jesus Christ. Show us his grace and mercy. Show us his holiness and his perfection. Help us, O Lord, in our hour of need. This we ask in Christ's precious name. Amen. This is a story of a great drama. For many people, this is one of their favorite stories in all of the Bible. But often we approach this story without understanding it properly. We can think that it is about doing away with old-fashioned laws. Or that no one should judge anyone else unless they're perfect. But the truth is that this is a story about how far people will go not to believe in Jesus. It's a story about how great the forgiveness is that we can have if we only believe in Jesus. And so this morning, I'd like to look at this passage under two headings. 
the first thing that we see is the trap that the Pharisees have set for Jesus. It's a trap that they have set, as they so often do. And then secondly, we see Jesus' answer to them. In this trap, we see that they attack both the woman and they also attack Jesus. And in Jesus' answer, we hear perfect truth. And we see that there is mercy at the cross. Well, let's begin then by looking at our passage. And before we dive into our passage, I have to deal with some preliminary matters. Because if your Bible is like my Bible, before our passage, you have some brackets that say something like this. The earliest manuscripts do not include 753 through 811. And then on top of the brackets or next to them, there's a footnote. And I'm thankful that I read the footnote earlier because I would need my reading glasses to read the small text of the footnote that says something like, some manuscripts do not include this text. Others include the passage in a different place or with slight variations. And then the passage itself is bracketed off. Now, what does this mean? This is a place where there is what is called a textual variant. Now, the Bible you hold in your hand is not only the result of translation, that is, it was originally written in Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek, and is translated into English that you hold, or in some instances, Mandarin, or in some instances, Spanish. But in order to get the Bible that we have, it had to be transmitted, passed down, over century after century, millennia. And it was passed down through the work of copyists. That is, men, and on some occasions I would think women, who copied one text onto another manuscript so that it could be distributed throughout the known world. This is, of course, before the days of mimeographs, if any of you remember that. It's before the days of Xerox machines, and it certainly is before the days of the Internet. The only way you could get something from one place to the other, the written word, was to have someone copy it and to send it somewhere else. And, of course, what happened over the centuries is one person would copy another person's work, and then a third person would copy the second person's work, and so on and so on, over century after century. And no one claims that the copyists were inspired, or were perfect. And so over the centuries, errors crept into the manuscripts. And there are some scholars who like to scare Christians, make them think that the Bible is not sound, that they can't trust their Bible, and they'll make statements like this, one that Bart Ehrman is famous for. There are more errors in your Bible than words in the New Testament. And that sounds shocking. How could we possibly trust a text with thousands of errors, until we realize that about 98% of the errors are spelling errors, where it's clear what's meant. Or a word is duplicated because the copyist wrote the word, looked up, forgot where he was, and wrote the word again. Or in some instances even, writing a line, writing a second line, being disturbed, coming back and writing the first line again on line three. Easily understood and fixed and corrected. Only a very few of these so-called errors are even substantive. One is found in 
John's first letter, a famous passage called the Johannine Kama. It's a, a verse that speaks about the Trinity. A second is the ending of Mark. How long is the ending of Mark? And perhaps the best known in all of the Bible is this text before us. So what is going on here? Well, you have to understand first that the Bible is the most attested text from all of the ancient world. There are thousands and thousands of manuscripts of the Bible. And the more manuscripts you have, the more opportunities you have for them to differ. So these thousands of manuscripts of the Bible, most of them date from about the 5th century on. There are a few that are older than that. We'll talk about that in a moment. Now let's compare that to something else that you may have read in college and that no one doubts and is the product of study throughout all the world. The Iliad and the Odyssey of Homer. Do you know that the earliest manuscript of the Iliad and the Odyssey is about a thousand years old? Or something like 3,000 years after Homer wrote it? Do you know that there's about two dozen copies of the Iliad and Odyssey combined in manuscripts, as opposed to thousands and thousands? Do you know that we have a handful of Caesar's commentary on the Gallic War? And just a few dealing with Cicero's speeches? Perhaps the best-known example is the first modern novel, which is celebrated as such, exists in only one copy. And in that, it's not complete. I had studied in graduate school, and you're reading the novel, and all of a sudden it's break off, pick up much later, because it's missing. So, most of our manuscripts of the Bible come from about the 5th century down. That's why older translations, like the King James Version, include this text without any brackets, without any footnote, because all of the extant manuscripts that were in existence at that time had this passage. Later in the 19th century, during a period of archaeological flourishing, as archaeologists got access to the Holy Land and to Egypt and into places like monasteries that had been holed up, and especially, as you can imagine, in areas where it was arid and dry and papyri and, and various manuscripts could last longer, they found newer, so to speak, older manuscripts. There are a handful, three or four manuscripts that date from about the 3rd century. And what they found was that those oldest manuscripts, those earliest manuscripts, some don't have this text. Some have it in a different spot in the Gospel of John. Some have it in the Gospel of Luke. And so there is a scholarship that says that this is not a part of the original Gospel of John. But that doesn't close the case because many scholars believe it's original. This text is found in a 3rd century commentary on the Bible. And the church historian Eusebius tells us about a church father by the name of Papias who lived before 100 AD and taught a story that sounds remarkably like this. John Calvin puts it this way. It is plain enough that this passage was unknown anciently to the Greek churches and some conjecture that it has been brought from some other place and inserted here. But it has always been received by the Latin churches, and it is found in many old Greek manuscripts, and contains nothing unworthy of an apostolic spirit. 
there is no reason why we should refuse to apply it to our advantage. And so for that reason, your pastor is going to preach on this text. That I believe that this text is a part of John's gospel. That it does belong here. But even if it's been moved here from Luke, it's still the word of God. Even if it should be in chapter 20, it's still the word of God. And there's nothing in this passage at all that contradicts anything in the Word of God or that we don't also have in other places of the Word of God. So this text is not a text on which everything hinges. And so let's see what this text can teach us. We come to this text. Now I want you to look past the brackets and go up a bit and remember the context of where we are. It doesn't just drop in from heaven. Jesus has been teaching at the great feast. He's caused great anger and hatred in the Jewish leaders. They've tried to have him arrested, you remember, and they failed. Those who went to arrest him said, no man ever spoke like this man. And so the leaders go away to come up with a plan to trap Jesus. And so when Jesus comes back to the temple to teach... They confront him. Now, don't hear this story apart from that context. The context is important. Jesus is teaching the people. Verse 2 actually tells us he is teaching all the people. All the people have come to him. And so, as a part of their plot, the Pharisees and the scribes bring a woman publicly before Jesus. In verse 3, they bring a woman who had been caught in adultery and they place him in the midst. That is, in the midst of where Jesus is teaching, in the midst of the temple, in the midst of the crowd, you couldn't ask for a more public place. And what they do is they say to Jesus, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now, we've been in the Gospel of John long enough that you should realize as soon as they say, teacher, they're up to something. They don't trust what Jesus teaches. They don't want him teaching anything. They're using this as an honorific to throw him off his game. And so they say to Jesus, we've caught this woman. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? Now, you have to understand what's going on here. Jesus is not a magistrate. He's not a judge. He's not a part of the ruling council. They don't need Jesus' permission for anything. He has no official capacity. And if what they were concerned about was justice and the law, they wouldn't need to come to Jesus. They would have gone to the law courts. They would have gone to the ruling council. Now, notice the accusation that they bring. She was caught... In the act of adultery. Now this is a very specific accusation. And it carries a very difficult burden of proof. This could not just be an accusation. This could not be just circumstantial evidence. It's not as if they could say, well we know this because her husband has been getting odd papyri in the mail recently. She went out and bought all new clothes. And we're wondering why she's done that. She doesn't cook dinner as often anymore for him. No, no, no. The details had to be observed in the account of the witnesses. 
That is, they had to actually be caught in the act. One of the rabbis puts it this way. There could be no other explanation of their physical movements. Now, to give you an idea of what this means, I'll give you an example, an illustration suitable for all ages. There's an apocryphal book in which there is a person by the name of Susanna. And there are two witnesses that seek to discredit her and to punish her through the law by accusing her of adultery. And they gather together and they determine beforehand they will accuse her of committing adultery with a certain person at a certain time in a certain place under a tree. And they each give all of these testimonies. And then they are each asked, what kind of tree was it? And they can't agree on the type of tree. And therefore the case is dismissed. Because obviously they don't have every single detail. Now this is important. That's what's needed to prove this case. And so they properly and correctly say that the law requires stoning by death. Death by stoning, excuse me. Uh, For example, we see this in Leviticus chapter 20 verse 10. I'm sure many of you have taken the time to memorize the book of Leviticus, but I will will give you this passage. If a man commits adultery with the wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulteress shall be put to death. And then in the book of Deuteronomy, which is so named because it means the second telling of the law, chapter 22, verse 22, we read, If a man is found lying with the wife of another man, both of them shall die. The man who lay with the woman and the woman, so you shall purge the evil from Israel. So they are right. This is a capital offense. But where's the man? Did you notice that from both passages I read? That both the man and the woman are to be put to death. If they were really concerned about the law, they would have detained the man also and they would have brought him to Jesus as well. At best, they let the man get away and didn't seek to go after him. At worst, the man was a part of this plot to bring this woman before Jesus. That is, they put the man up to it to commit the act of adultery so that they would have a crime against this woman so that they could bring her before Jesus so that they could remember verse 6. So that they could bring a charge against him. That is their end, John tells us. It's not justice. It's not God's law in Leviticus. They want to trap Jesus and to punish him. They were treating this woman as a pawn in order to trap Jesus. They were using God's word as a weapon against her and Jesus. Now, we should not be surprised when Satan tries to misuse God's word for wicked purposes. People will twist the meaning of God's word in order to get their way. They will twist God's word in order to undermine the godliness of other people or to attack others. We have to be careful that our respect for God's word prevents us from ever doing that. But their sin against this woman is not the worst. It was horrible that they were willing to put her to death to suit their plan. But their plan was to attack Jesus. They didn't care about this woman. 
They didn't care about anyone else who might be involved. They didn't care about God's word. We know this directly from verse 6. And we also know this because of their pattern of trying to trap Jesus. In, I had to smile this morning as Pastor Muir read the scripture text. Because it was not designed this way except for in God's providence that we would be reading Matthew 19. And Matthew 19 is, of course, one of the examples of them trying to trap Jesus. Well, what do you think about divorce, Jesus? Give us an answer. And if you'll notice in the scriptures, the trap always involves two answers that they think either answer will condemn Jesus. And Jesus, of course, finds the proper and biblical answer and avoids their trap. Another example of this is when they tried to test Jesus about who should pay taxes and to whom should you pay taxes. And then there's, of course, the story that borders on the ridiculous, that the Sadducees, who didn't believe in the resurrection, wanted to mock the resurrection of Jesus. And they say, well, imagine if this is the case, Rabbi. We've heard of a man who's married to a woman, and the man dies. And then according to the law, the woman marries the man's brother. And guess what? The man's brother dies. And so she marries another brother. And guess what? He dies. And over and over again until seven brothers die. Now, it's not exactly good luck to marry this woman, I suppose. But the question they ask is, whose wife will she be in the resurrection? And of course, Jesus says, you're asking completely the wrong question. We're neither married nor given in marriage in the resurrection, but we live like the angels in heaven. But you see, this is their pattern. You have to understand that to understand this story. This isn't about this woman at all. This isn't about holiness at all. This isn't about culture at all. This isn't about appearances at all. It is an attempt to trap Jesus. Well, the reason was always the same. They wanted to destroy him. They couldn't arrest him, so they come up with this plot. There's no difference. It's just more subtle. They really didn't want his opinion. They really didn't need it. They didn't need his permission to enact the law. Jesus had no official authority. It was a part of their hateful agenda to bring Jesus down. And it actually was an ingenious plan. We have to give the Pharisees some credit for a well-thought-out effort to discredit Jesus. What will Jesus choose? Will he choose law or will he choose grace? Will Jesus urge forgiveness of this woman? And if he did, he would be accused of not believing God's word, of not holding to God's word. He would be accused of setting aside the holiness of God and the message of the law. And that would be true because adultery is a horrible thing. It destroys families. It denies the picture of the marriage of God with his people. And so they would undermine Jesus' credibility as a messenger of God if he could be portrayed as someone who only brings God's message when it's convenient for him. On the other hand, will Jesus stand by the law of Moses and cast a stone? To do this would compromise Jesus' teaching on grace. Imagine if Jesus had said, yes, she must be punished and we must stone her. Would any sinner in need ever come to Jesus again? You see, as Calvin puts it, 
Their intention was to constrain Christ to depart from his office of preaching grace, that he might appear to be fickle and unsteady. What Calvin means here is they're trying to make everyone see that Jesus' grace is not real grace, and that he'll waver from it when it's to his benefit. And there's also one other problem with this. That is, if Jesus had said, yes, she must be stoned, he would get in trouble with the Romans, and they would arrest him. Because only the Romans could inflict capital punishment. We know that because of the crucifixion. The Jews could not kill Jesus for blasphemy. They had to hand him over to the Romans, because if there was one thing the Romans wanted to be in charge of, was order and law. So what will Jesus do? Well, to start with, he ignores them. Look at the end of verse 6. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. Now, I'm going to save you some time. I'm not going to iterate for you the dozens and dozens of speculations that commentators have on what Jesus was writing. That he's writing Bible verses. That he's writing the sins of those who are accusing. That he's writing... Um, the judgment that he's going to give, that he's writing passages from the Old Testament. Because the truth is, we have no idea what he wrote. Many people speculate about, about it, but after all, if we needed to know what Jesus wrote, John would have told us. He doesn't. And so what Jesus is writing is not important. But the Pharisees will not give up in verse 7, as they continued to ask him. And this verb, ask, continued to ask, is in what's called an imperfect tense. And you don't need to be a grammarian to understand what that means. You just need to have children. You know how children ask things, and it's not one time, and it's not ten times, but it could be like a hundred times? Somehow children think that the more they ask you, the more likely you are to say yes. In my household, it was more likely to make me say no in louder Italian. But that's what they're doing here. They won't leave Jesus alone. And so Jesus has not looked at them. He doesn't engage them. But because they persist, he stands up and he gives to them the perfect answer. Now, after all, we expect the perfect answer from Jesus, right? Because he's Jesus. We know Jesus won't sin in any way. He won't compromise God's justice. He won't compromise his compassionate kingdom. And he certainly won't allow this woman to be destroyed in a devilish plot. But how can Jesus accomplish all of this? You see, that's the problem of all problems. It's the problem that Paul points out in Romans chapter 3. How can God be just? and the justifier of the ungodly. Well, Jesus stands up and looks at them and says, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. It's so simple. It's so direct. And then do you see what he does? He goes back to ignoring them. Look at verse 8. Once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. He's letting it all sink in. And the effect of his statement is to make them abandon their plot. 
Look at verse 9. They went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And then Jesus was left alone. You could picture the scene in your mind's eye. Jesus says that, and he looks back down, and he's writing again. We don't have any idea what he's writing. But apparently what he said has had such an effect that they kind of slink off. Now, remember what's going on here. These are the Pharisees. These are the leaders. They have come up with this plot. You can imagine in their plotting, they're thinking, this is the best plot ever. There is no way Jesus gets out of this. And they give up without a fight. They just slink off. You see, one by one, they're struck by their consciences. And they slink away. One of the greatest pieces of Russian literature is a book by the name of Crime and Punishment. If you haven't read it, I highly recommend it to you. It's a story of a man who's in poverty, and he seeks his way out of poverty by murdering his landlady. And he does it in such a way that no one observes him doing it, and he's sure he's gotten away with it. And there is an inspector who comes and simply interrogates the man, Raskolnikov, over and over again, asks question after question, and Raskolnikov's conscience is so weighed down that he ends up confessing, blurting it out, because he can't take the pressure anymore. That's what's happening. They, They can't take the pressure, so they leave. Now, what did Jesus mean here when he says this? Now, he could not have meant that perfect sinlessness was required to exact justice. How do we know that? Well, after all, if that was the only requirement, Jesus could have thrown the first stone. But more than that, if that's what Jesus meant, that you could only judge someone if you were sinless, then all of the laws that God had given are worthless. No one is in a position to meet out justice. It would make a mockery of justice. It would make God a fool. It would mean not only would no one ever be punished, those who would be victims would never get justice. That can't be what Jesus means. Some would have you believe that. That you can never hold anyone accountable unless you have never sinned and you're perfect. That's not what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying something so much more in tune with the actual law. You see, the law required that for the death penalty to be enacted, there must be two witnesses, and the witnesses must be the first ones to throw a stone. So, for example, in Deuteronomy chapter 17, we read this. On the evidence of two witnesses, or of three witnesses... The one who is to die shall be put to death. A person shall not be put to death on the evidence of one witness. The hand of the witnesses shall be first against him to put him to death, and afterward the hand of all the people. Now what does that mean? That means that the witnesses had to be innocent of that crime. They could not be involved. They couldn't have been involved in the crime and said, Well, he thought it up. Well, she was responsible. He made me do it. You can't do that. You have to be innocent of the crime. You have to be the witness, and you have to be the one, again, under Deuteronomy 17, to throw the first stone. So the question is, where are the witnesses? They're not here. 
Just like guess who? The man. None of them are here. See, this takes us back to the plot itself. The Pharisees had set this woman up. She may not have known she was part of a setup. She may have willingly participated in sin. But the only way that they could catch her in the act of adultery is to set her up so that they could observe it and bring her here to test Jesus. They had arranged all of this so that they could bring the case to Jesus. This was not a coincidence. They were not walking down the street and all of a sudden saw an adultery happen. They had plotted this out. They were guilty. And they knew it. God has given you something called a conscience. It makes you aware of right and wrong. You know when you are doing wrong. That's why people try to drown out the voice of God through their conscience, through drugs, through drinking, through other excesses. Don't fall for that. You can never drown out your guilt. There's only one hope for your guilt to go away. And that is to confess your sin and to seek forgiveness through faith in Christ. Now, after they had all left, Jesus was left with the woman. Now, notice how Jesus addresses her. He uses a term of respect. Woman, where are they? Now, this is, again, a term of respect. We might even translate it ma'am or miss. You may recall it's the same term Jesus uses to address his mother. You see, Jesus doesn't treat this woman like an object. He doesn't treat her like a tool to be manipulated like the Pharisees do. She is a person made in the image of God. Jesus cares about people. Jesus cared about her. And that should inform us. The world would be a far better place if we treated all people as people. Now that doesn't mean excusing the wrong that they do, but it means we have to understand that all people have value as creations of God, in the image of God. And that can start today. It can start here. It can start with you. Commit to following Jesus in this. Now Jesus now asks her a question in verse 10. Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? Now notice what he doesn't ask her. He doesn't say, are you guilty? To which she would have to respond, well, yes. You see, Jesus could have avoided this entire trap by simply looking at the Pharisees and saying, you don't need my help. Go deal with this on your own. And that would have cost the woman her life. And so instead he asks, has no one condemned you? What he's asking is, are there not two witnesses according to the law? And her answer is, no one, Lord. Now, we don't know exactly what she meant by Lord. She could have meant something like Sir or Mister. 
Or it could also possibly be an acknowledgement of who Jesus is. Because this is the word that is used, Jesus is Lord. She may have heard of Jesus. She may have heard his teaching in the temple. And she certainly fits the definition of someone who is thirsty and needs living water. After all, doesn't she remind you a lot of the woman at the well? But we don't need to know why she addressed him as Lord. That can be something else that we can find out in glory. The key is Jesus' response in verse 11. Neither do I condemn you. Go and from now on sin no more. Now Jesus does not say this because he does away with the law. Far too often... Christians think that Jesus is opposed to the law and judgment and that he replaces the law with grace. That law is bad and grace is good. But Jesus doesn't say, well, I know you're probably guilty, but it's probably a consensual relationship. Why make such a big deal about it? He doesn't say, you know, this is kind of an outdated law. It's for a different time. In a different place. We know better now. Do not fall for the lie that the law is bad and grace is good. God's law is good and holy. And in Christ there is so much more, so greater a thing than ignoring the law. Jesus satisfies the demands of the law. He takes our place. He makes us not just unpunished. He makes us not guilty by taking our sin onto himself. Jesus doesn't condemn this woman because he will take her place. Forgiveness does not come easily. It comes at a cost. The Pharisees did not understand that. They expected that one option would be for Jesus to wink at sin and declare it unimportant. But sin is so horrible, so deadly, so important that Jesus came to earth and became a man to bear our sin. To die in our place. To taste the death that we deserve. This shows us that Jesus is a merciful Savior. See this in Jesus' last statement. Go and from now on sin no more. It shows us that mercy is found at the cross. We cannot be forgiven by Jesus and go on living like we please, as if Jesus doesn't exist. Jesus extends grace to her and she is changed. Notice it is never the reverse order. Jesus doesn't say to her, Change, and then I'll think about forgiving you. He says, you are not condemned. Therefore, go and sin no more. Do you see yourself in this story? Maybe you've had an experience where you were like a Pharisee, using a person for your own benefit. Or maybe you're like one of the crowd watching on. Wondering who Jesus is and what difference he would make in your life. Or maybe you were like this woman 
caught in sin, knowing you were guilty, and wondering if you would even survive. You have the opportunity today to come to Jesus, to know the sweetness of forgiveness by grace, to be free from sin, and to live for Jesus. Will you hear Jesus now? Will you trust Him? Your only hope is Jesus, to be forgiven and to live for Him. Jesus tells you, neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. Let's pray.